after the salutation or the greeting, where the typical form is the name of the writer, to the addressee, greetings. Historians tell us the next item would be a thanksgiving or a prayer to the gods, thanking them for the general well-being and for the health of the recipients. And Paul's letters typically have a section like this, but he doesn't simply follow the ancient secular form. No, he brings in Christ. So you'll see a very Christological focus as we read through the verses today. And he has his own standard format, which kind of goes like this. This is according to Gordon Fee's commentary on the letter. It starts with, I, one, give thanks, two, to God, three, always, four, for the recipients, and five, for these specific reasons. And he pretty much follows this pattern. Some examples, if you want to look them up later, Romans 1, 8, Ephesians 1, 16, Philippians 1, 3, Colossians 1, 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, Philemon 1, 4, pretty much walking through Paul's epistles, most of them will have some form of a thanks to God. And now as I read these verses, I'd like us to take note of the things Paul is thankful for about the believers at Corinth and who accomplished those things. So those two things, watch for them. What are the things that Paul is saying he's thankful for and who accomplished them? This is the word of God. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use your word in our hearts today. I pray that the next 40, 45 minutes would not just be a human effort, a good talk, a motivational speech, even an inspiring speech. What we need, Father, is to hear from you. We need to hear from God. So I pray that you would Use my preparation, but move me out of the way that you would be seen and that Jesus would be seen and glorified and lifted up in our hearts. Father, I feel like I've prepared the altar, but we need you to send the fire. Please do that. You are faithful to use your word. We pray that you would do it today. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of introduction, I have a few kind of high-level points that I want to bring up about this Thanksgiving section. First of all, Paul roots his thanksgiving to God in the believer's identity, in their identity as those that were called and gifted and sustained and would be ultimately atoned and blameless in the righteousness of Christ. He's providing here a theological underpinning that's going to support the rest of his book. It's going to support the admonitions, which will be very direct to the Corinthians. It will support the teachings, the doctrine that he's going to bring later, the challenges that he'll bring up later in the letter. This here is what he wants them to rally around, the identity they share in common because of Jesus. Chris had what I found to be a helpful analogy when we were talking about our text a week ago. When you have a building where a lot of people work together, or maybe a a school, you need a place identified in advance that if there's an emergency, if there's a crisis, you go and you gather at that point. Maybe it's a, a flagpole. Maybe it's the third light pole, the big oak tree by the fence. But 
you need to know the assembly point where everyone gathers. I think to some degree that's what this is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Being rooted in their identity is critical for these Corinthian believers. And it's where Paul is going to have them return in times of peace, but also in times of crisis, which they're beginning to already find themselves in. That's why I'm calling this message the basis of Christian unity. Without being grounded in this shared identity in Jesus, the very concept of unity is a fantasy. But with the identity they have shared in Christ, they and we, brothers and sisters, can experience true Christian unity as a reality in our lives. There's a few high-level themes that Paul is going to come back to later in the letter, and he actually brings them up in this Thanksgiving section. So it's not that he is disconnected in his Thanksgiving from the stuff he's going to talk about later. No, it's very much connected. So we'll notice as we go through today's text some of these high-level themes of the book. Things that he expresses thanks to God for are the very things that he's going to address later as concerns and challenges for the church. Things that he's going to confront them about, he now thanks God for his work in their lives. Items like how they use their gifts. Here he thanks God for gifting the Corinthians by his spirit. And later he's going to challenge them about selfish use of their gifts for for personal reasons rather than to bless and build up the body of Christ. He's going to challenge them later in chapter 15 about their understanding of end times and the final resurrection. But here he thanks God that they're waiting for the revealing of Jesus, that they are looking forward to his end time work and the consummation of all things. But here, those, some of these themes are going to come up and we'll address them in, in coming weeks in more detail. And then one additional, by way of illustration, is the word I've put on the slide, and it just says Rickroll. And if I were to say I had been Rickrolled, how many of you would be familiar with that term? Awesome, there are some, good. What if I used it in the context of the name Rick Astley? How many would, yeah, a few more maybe? That's about what I expected, so probably about 30, 40%. To explain the term and to keep some of you from missing out, I need to walk through a little bit of internet ephemera, but trust me, this, this has a point. The term Rickroll was first used in May 2007 when someone on an internet forum claimed to have a new game available, and they provided a hyperlink, as you'll see on the, the website, you know, where the letters are highlighted or they're underlined and they're blue, and it means that you can click on it. But instead of accessing the download that was promised, the link went to the music video of Rick Astley singing his 1987 hit, Never Gonna Give You Up. And I would sing it for you, but it will be stuck in your head and you'll be upset with me later. But the words go like this. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and desert you. Never going to make you cry. Never going to say goodbye. Never going to tell a lie and hurt you. And by getting the song with him singing it, instead of what was promised, you had been rickrolled. And the name itself is kind of has its own Internet background, um, it's a variation of the term duck roll, which happened when some other Internet people replaced every instance of the word egg on their website with the word duck. So egg roll became duck roll, and for some reason when you clicked on that, you had a duck on wheels, but I digress. So by 2008, so it took about a year, this became a bit of an Internet phenomenon. So if you were on the web in that time frame, you might remember it. YouTube, even on April Fool's Day, rickrolled all of their featured videos. You clicked on one of those videos, and instead of what you were looking for, you got Rick Astley. Based on one poll that year, there's an estimate that at least 18 million Americans had experienced this. And it even left the Internet for a while when, on Thanksgiving Day during the Macy's parade, Rick Astley came out and sang the song kind of as a surprise to viewers. Then this came up in the public attention a few weeks ago when one of the wives of a presidential candidate used the following line in her speech. He will never, ever give up. 
And most importantly, he will never, ever let you down. Besides this not being true of any mere mortal, you will be let down. Your pastor will let you down. Your candidate for political office will let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Your best friend will let you down. Your hopes are bound to be dashed if they're tied ultimately to anyone but Christ. By saying that, I'm not encouraging you to distrust everyone, but to make your ultimate hopes on the one whom the psalmist and Paul here call the faithful God. So the essence of this internet meme is to lure someone into thinking they're going to get something good, something they want, enticing them to click that link and then leaving them feeling pranked by ending up hearing lyrics that express the exact opposite. Because you have ultimately been let down. You have been told a lie. But my point, Paul is not rickrolling the Corinthians. He's not bait and switching them with a topic unrelated to the message he has for them. He's not making an empty promise. And I want us to see that in today's text. He's intentionally redirecting the church at Corinth, not to himself, not to Paul, not to themselves or something they can do. Instead, he is directing them to the grace and the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. He's directing them to God and what he has done and not to something else. And I made kind of this foolish-looking clip art of the basis for Christian unity. When you look for it, you are not going to be let down, but you are going to be pointed by Paul, and I pray this message to God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ, that from calling to consummation, God has showered us with grace upon grace upon grace. So in the middle of conflict, in the middle of struggle, as the Corinthians are when he writes this letter, they're to find their assurance in the character and in the work of God to complete what he has already started in them. God is the one who called them into this fellowship, and he is the one who will keep them to the end. And that brings us to the big idea in our text today. Remembering God's faithfulness to complete the ongoing work of grace he began is an essential foundation for Christian unity. It's up on the screen, but I'll read it again. Remembering God's faithfulness to complete the ongoing work of grace that he began is an essential foundation for Christian unity. My outline has three points which follow really the way that Paul builds from past and what God's already done for the Corinthians and the grace of Christ that has been shown to them to their present state and what he's doing in them now and ultimately to their future hope. Those are the three points. In this text, God himself is the main actor. He's the one performing all of the action verbs in these six verses. This is such an important reminder, such a needful reminder, that he's also the one written about in all of Scripture. From the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Old Testament, to the Gospels and epistles of the New, the story of Jesus and of redemption history would only be history if it did not have Jesus in it. And our lives would lack these past, present, and future realities that Paul reminds us of here. Today, I want to show you those three significant ways that God, the divine author, breathes into Paul's letter amazing truths about himself. Because remember, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, but more than that, it's God by his spirit breathing, inspiring the word of God for us as well. He starts out by reminding them of what they'd already experienced and thanking God for past grace given in Christ. Let's read again the first three verses, verses four through six. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So the three main verbs in there, grace was given, it's past tense, 
you were enriched, also past tense, it's something that's already occurred, the testimony was confirmed. So all three parts are past tense. God had, through the person of Jesus, already shown them grace. And for this grace working in their lives, Paul was continually bringing thanks back to God. The word always doesn't mean 24-7. Paul just kind of had this on auto-repeat. Instead, it means every opportunity when the church came to his attention. Every time he was reminded of the church of Corinth, he would thank God for his work of grace in them. He would remember the year and a half that he had spent with them after planting that church, how he had preached the gospel to them. He would remember that time when God had given them the grace to hear and believe the good news about Jesus. And this is probably a big part of what Paul is thankful for, for that initial work of grace that they heard and received the gospel. His thanks is a form of commemorating the work of God in them, of memorializing it, and in the process being brought to worship again for the grace that he had also experienced. If you just had this slice of the letter, you might think that the Corinthians had it all together, that they were doing great, that there were no problems in that church. But Paul, even in the next verse, is going to appeal to them very strongly about the divisions, about the strife. He'll appeal to them strongly about the immorality that they were letting fester in their church. But as a sign of his own confidence that they are redeemed by Christ, he is thankful here for God's work in them. And by being thankful not to them but to God, he's pointing out and reminding them that they have no reason for boast in this grace because it's grace. It's a gift. And so the glory goes not to the recipient of the gift but to the giver of the gift, God himself. You see on the slide, I have two main points for this first past grace given in Christ. The first is that they were made rich in him. As an expansion of this reality that they had received grace from God in Christ, Paul gives thanks that they were enriched, which literally means to make rich, that they were made rich in every way in him. And he gives two examples of ways that they were already made rich. First, by receiving gifts of all speech. And second, by being enriched in all knowledge. The original words that Paul used, though Greek to us, are probably somewhat familiar. The word used for speech is logos. And the word used for knowledge is gnosis. Basically, all words and all thoughts had been richly given by God to them. In the context of him already using the word grace, he uses the word charis, the root of charisma. He usually refers in the New Testament to the gifting, the spiritual gifting of the Spirit to his people. Most Bible scholars are going to connect these references to all speech and to all knowledge with the spiritual gifts, with the work of the Spirit that he had done in them after their salvation, to receive special gifting for the building up of the church. Most likely, these terms of speech and knowledge, therefore, are referencing the very spiritual gifts of tongues and of prophecy. The same two gifts that later, in chapters 12 through 14, Paul is going to challenge their use of and admonish them to prioritize building up the body, to use their gifts in love, the ability to speak well was already a highly prized skill in that culture. In fact, it's going to be one of the things he comes to in chapters 1 through 3, that they loved to have fancy orations, to speak very well. And Paul is going to contrast the preaching of the cross that he sought to bring, which removed all of that sophistry, all of that special language and fancy presentation. And instead, Paul is going to say, I came to you simply with a message of Jesus. 
also human knowledge we see in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians was something else that they prized themselves in in Corinth. But this human knowledge would puff up in a deadly way rather than build up the church in a healthy way. So Paul will pour out ink and tears on these concerns later in the letter. Though here he thanks God for blessing them richly with these grace gifts that in Christ in every way they truly had been made rich. In addition to making them rich, he also made their testimony firm. Another evidence of this past grace that God had given to the church is found in verse 6, that the testimony about Christ had been confirmed among them. What does this mean, testimony confirmed among them? If your Bible is like mine, you probably have this verse set off somehow from the other verses. Mine is set off by dashes, indicating this is somewhat of an aside or a parenthetical thought. Most likely the first word in this parenthetical, even as, means that Paul is comparing what he's already been saying to what he's saying now. He's using it in a comparative sense. Just as, even as they were enriched in Christ, so also the testimony about Christ was confirmed. These are both true statements. Just as you've already been gifted, so the testimony that God has done a work in you has been confirmed. And like a corroborating witness in a trial, the case for salvation in Jesus Christ was confirmed by their lives. And because of that, they also could bear witness to Christ and to his work. The testimony referred to here was the gospel itself, how Jesus lived a sinless life, how he died a sacrificial death, how he rose in a triumphant resurrection. And the gospel reality was made more firm. It was confirmed both by their transformed lives, but also by their having received these gifts from Christ. So the testimony that Paul had brought to Corinth of Jesus Christ as an apostle had transformed them. And their very lives were now confirming the truth, the reality of Jesus to the rest of the world. So the two past tense aspects of the grace that they had received was they had been made rich and their testimony had been made firm. One application before we move on. Paul here is thanking God for his work in fellow believers. And this was personally convicting to me when I asked, how often do I thank God for what he has done in others in the body? How often do I thank God for the ways that he has gifted people? Do I feel encouraged when I see someone exercising their gift? when they're using it to build up the church, to strengthen the body? Or do I sometimes feel threatened by it? Like, I don't have that gift. Paul here found a way to thank God for the ways that he had gifted the Corinthian believers. Even when that gifting wasn't always used to edify. And in much the same way, may God help us to be truly thankful for the ways that he has gifted others in the body, seeing it as from him and intended for the good of the church and for his eternal glory. We turn to the next verse where the tense of the verbs will change to the here and now. He's been talking past tense, but now Paul shifts gears to remind the church of their present satisfaction in Christ. Reading verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like the last main point, this one also has two subpoints, and then we'll seek to apply it. The two main clauses are separate umbrellas of thought that will actually build on top of each other. Paul starts by reminding them that they're not currently lacking. Then he reminds them that they're waiting for something even better. So as much as today you are not lacking anything 
Corinthian church, you are eagerly awaiting something even better. So the first one of those points, he made sufficient their gifting. Paul is continuing here to thank God for the spiritual gifts that he has given that church. But here he's emphasizing that they have all the gifts that they need. God has not held back anything from his church. They're not lacking in any way in what they have received from him. One way this word lacking in the text can be used is to come up short. For example, the same word is used when they ran out of wine at the wedding in Cana. They came up short. Their supply ran out. And God is saying, instead, your supply of grace that I've given you and the gifting that I've given you will never run out. It's also often used in an athletic sense. And here is my opportunity to talk about the Olympics. Because I have to admit, I, like maybe some of you, if you admit it, have been glued to my TV a bit more than normal the last few weeks. In fact, Lorena will testify to this. I'll often come home from work and just turn on the TV to the Olympics and leave it on for much of the evening. I'm not encouraging them to do that. I'm just saying that's what I've been doing. And connecting this to ancient times, obviously they had the Olympics. Those were an ancient sporting event. But Corinth actually had their own version of the Olympics. They were called the Isthmian Games. And they happened every two years. So the Olympics, even back then, were every four years. In the middle, they had another one, I think Peloponnesian Games or something like that. But these Isthmian Games would happen every two years. They featured events like wrestling, chariot racing, and pancration, which I started reading some of the rules of this event, and it's actually probably responsible for modern mixed martial arts. It was kind of a no-holds-barred kind of fighting match. But the concept... To get to the point, the concept of not lacking in any spiritual gift carries the word picture of not being left behind in the race. Not failing to finish the race or being disqualified. When you enter a competition, you want to finish it. You want to finish well, but ultimately you want to cross that finish line and get your time. Maybe when you enter a swimming competition against someone like the American Olympian Katie Ledecky, you basically feel like you got left behind even if you win the silver because you're like so far back in the pool from where she finished. But here God is saying through Paul, the Corinthians have not been left behind in their spiritual gifting. And as such, they should rest satisfied that God has provided everything they need to be built up as his church, provided they use their gifts in love. So he's going to use this later as the foundation. You have been gifted with everything you need. And later he'll talk about how they're using those gifts is the problem. It's not that God has left them lacking in any way. But their use of the gifts was selfish rather than outward flowing to the good of the body. So first, they were made sufficient in their gifting. But second, they were made eager in their waiting. Now, Paul is still using present tense words when he says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But by waiting, he's already starting to point forward in his thanksgiving. The present reality is the church is waiting for Christ's return. This is not passive waiting, though. This means they were eagerly expecting, anticipating the glory of Jesus being fully revealed and experiencing that firsthand for themselves. Because, to be honest, the present life carries with it the brokenness of the fall, of sinful flesh, of a cursed world that's groaning, waiting for that final redemption, that's waiting for everything to be made right again. The Corinthian believers had also experienced this effect in their lives and in their church. But rather than despairing in this time of waiting, Paul is thanking God that they were eagerly waiting, preparing to welcome Christ on his return. This also reminds us, even as we looked at last week, 
that God had called them to something. He had called them to be saints, called out ones. So this is a reminder that their living as called out ones should be characterized by an otherworldliness. In light of the strong pull that they were feeling toward the Corinthian lifestyle, rather than capitulate to that, rather than give in to the worldliness around them, Paul is thanking God that they're waiting for Jesus to be revealed and for all to be made right. To apply this, sometimes our lives can feel like we're waiting to get through the day. Or maybe you're a little bit longer range than that. Maybe that you're anticipating the weekend ahead or the next vacation, the next family trip. I confess this is partly the way I'm wired, I think, but I can live many days in kind of a a head down, get things done mode. I have my list of important tasks that I want to get done, that I need to accomplish for work, for ministry. And getting through that list can be sometimes all-encompassing, all-consuming. But when I'm doing that, I'm so often failing to remember God's final redemptive purposes that still await. I've got my blinders on, and I'm looking six feet in front of me. I came across this quote from John Piper yesterday. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. You might be like, whoa, keep reading. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. And if we don't want God above all things, we've not been converted by the gospel. What he's saying is if you're looking to heaven as a way to just get past the things in this life, but God isn't there, you're believing a false gospel. May today's text grow our present experience What the Corinthian church was waiting for was not just having the world behind them, but it was having Christ in all his glory revealed so that they could experience it. We too should be looking, I too should be looking to Jesus and his revelation when God's presence will be fully experienced in all its glory to our great joy. As it says in Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That will be fully and finally true after Jesus returns and comes to rule and reign on the earth. And I encourage us to anticipate that. Anticipate that with the words of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Not just for heaven and all the great things that are going to be there, but because I'll experience you there without my sin. And this reference to Christ's return, to the revelation of Jesus Christ, is going to draw Paul to consider in more detail the church's future hope in Christ. This is our third point, and it gets us to our final two verses for today. Future hope in Christ. Let's read those verses again. Who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, I'm going to talk about the verb tenses. Enough with the verb tenses, Josh. Well, the verbs have all changed now to future tense. God in the person of Jesus is still the one doing the work, but they're looking forward to what's going to happen. They're not left to themselves in the future to fend for their own fate. No, these words defining the future are showing how God is going to carry them to the end. And they're not just about the next six months or even the next ten years. These are ultimate words. These have finality to them. To the end. To the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God will sustain and God will bring you guiltless. Everything God's grace had accomplished for the church was going to keep working in and through them until that final day. 
So let that truth be a deep well of encouragement to you, brother, to you, sister. We haven't been saved by grace to live now by works, but God's grace continues to do its work in us and through us. We have been made secure to the end. The same root verb that is translated here to sustain, who will sustain you to the end, it's the same word we saw in verse 6 that was translated confirmed. The testimony was confirmed. And in a similar way to Christ's testimony having been made firm in their lives, so they would be held secure, held firm to the end. This security is not the claim of, I prayed a prayer when I was young. My life direction never changed. Nothing ever changed about me. But I believe that once saved, always saved. That's not the kind of security he's talking about here. Rather, this is the security that recognizes that the God who calls is the same God who saves. So when he calls, when he brings sinners to himself, he saves, he transforms, he gives new hearts. And Paul says this multiple times in his letters. I'll use just two. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We probably all know Romans 8, 28. But in the less well-known verses that follow it, we see God's unbreakable chain of security. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, first link in the chain, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, another link in the chain, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Being held secure to the end, means God will continue what he started in the lives of those predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Stated perhaps more simply, more succinctly in Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Having been created in the image of God, having that image marred, by the fall, by sin, our only hope of being restored back to the created image, back to the created purpose of bringing glory to God is to be conformed to Christ himself. And the only way we can do that is through God's work of salvation. To put it in the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is only possible through Jesus' life and death applied to our account, also called substitutionary atonement. This is how Jesus takes on our sins on himself, and in return we receive his perfect righteousness. This is God completing the work that he started and explains the next part of the passage as I mentioned, it builds on each other. He will sustain us to the end. But what will that end state look like? Will we still be corrupted by sin? No, it says we will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we are made blameless in the judgment. And this, brothers and sisters, if you missed the rest, this is glorious truth. We will be preserved blameless, without blemish in the final judgment. This literally means not convictable under scrutiny. Speaking to the fact that the courts of heaven themselves, the only truly just judge, will be unable to find evidence of guilt for the children of the king who stand clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Paul uses similar imagery in his letter to Colossae, and you, this is verse 21 and 22 of Colossians 1, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So he 
brings up their past. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In looking forward to the future hope that we have in Christ, Paul even uses the Old Testament language about the day of the Lord. I won't turn there, but Amos 5, 18 and 20, Joel 2, 31 are some cross-references. There's others in the book of Isaiah that use this terminology, the day of the Lord, which is ultimately a, a shorthand for referring to Christ's return, to the consummation of all things. And here he replaces that day of the Lord with the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even his end times marker has been centered around the person of Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, the only one who makes us clean before the Father. And Paul's confidence in the Corinthian believers being blameless isn't resting on their current status. It's not resting on their current lives, which was anything but blameless. No, it's resting on the finished work of Christ which they had received through faith and repentance. We'll see in later chapters that Paul will exhort the readers with strong challenges, with strong warnings about their lifestyles. But his confidence here is grounded in God's prior works of grace on behalf of that church. These, these works of grace will make them blameless in the last day. There's reason many songs have been written about this topic of being blameless before the Father. I think few things minister to us like this reminder. We just sang today in the song Cornerstone, which has lyrics from the hymn, The Solid Rock. A final stanza that ends, When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne. We need reminders of this truth because Satan, who's called in Revelation 12 the accuser of the brothers, he would love to discourage us by reminders of past sin, already repented of, already forgiven. He would love to point out ways we have failed to love God and our fellow man and leave us feeling miserable and hopeless. Or we may think falsely that God is still holding these past sins against us for future use. The gospel shatters this falsehood. And it's a falsehood I sometimes heard in the past, that in heaven we're going to kind of cower in shame as everyone in the world watches on a big movie screen, our lives being played out. We'll be ashamed because everyone's going to see every sin that we ever committed. Well, if this thought leaves you in fear because you're hiding some sin today and covering it up, you need to repent and forsake that sin, along with believing the good news that there's forgiveness and restoration in Christ. But fundamentally, this paradigm of a big movie screen in heaven where everyone will see every bad deed we've done isn't true. But you still might ask, as I think many have to themselves or even out loud, these words of the Puritan Thomas Brooks. Because he asked this question too. He asked whether at this great day the sins of the saints shall be brought into the judgment of discussion and discovery or no. Whether the Lord will in this day publicly manifest, proclaim, and make mention of the sins of his people or no. That's kind of using puritanical language. The word order is a little different than we'd use, but he's basically asking the question, is this going to be part of the final judgment that believers experience? Will he bring up every sin and proclaim it publicly? Well, let's start answering that by looking at the reminders in Scripture that actually point to the opposite about God not exposing the sins of his people. And here are a few. The first, that God has blotted out the sins of his people. Isaiah 43:25 I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44:22 I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. 
God also will not remember our sins as evidence against us. He already said in Isaiah 43:25, I will not remember your sins, but also in Jeremiah 31. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God will also cast all our sins into the sea. I love that picture in Micah 7. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God pardons the sins of his people. Jeremiah 33, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Micah 7, 18 this time. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God will also not impute. The word means to count or to charge our sins against us. Psalm 32, verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Also Romans 4, 6 through 8 quotes those verses. God also likens the expanse of his love to us, which is very high, as high as the heavens are above the earth, to how far our sins will be separated from us. For as high as the heavens, in Psalm 103, are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him, And as far as the east is from the west, that's pretty far. They're the two opposite sides of the compass. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. In response to these scriptures, I urge us not to settle for shallow views of God's forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus Christ. He did bear our sins in himself on the cross, meaning there's no wrath remaining for us, meaning Jesus already experienced that wrath, all of it. So if it is you seeking to hide sins today, seek the forgiveness of Christ in repentance. And if you've done so, find a sweet balm in his forgiveness. The Christian's final hope, according to his word, is that we are blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. To his gracious glory and by his glorious grace. And as he concludes this section of the letter, thanking God for the work of grace in the believers at Corinth, it almost seems like he cut short his thanks and breaks out in an exclamation of Godward worship. Because this next verse has him shifting gears yet again. He's going to confront the divisions, the disunity in the church. We'll study these verses next week, Lord willing, verses 10 through 17. But first, he praises God for bringing them together in Christ. Faithful, the God. Praise to God centers around affirmations of his character, who he is. And speaking and singing what is eternally true about God as revealed in his word is an essential part of our worship, along with lives that then bear testimony to that work. For Paul, being reminded of God's past, present, and future grace toward the church was sufficient that he turns this Godward and praises God for his faithfulness. God is faithful He is fully worthy of trust. He is true to himself and he is able to be relied on in life and for eternity. And this is our God, brothers and sisters, the only God, the one who never failed to keep any of his promises. Remember in Joshua, all came to pass. And as deeply rooted as this motif of God's faithfulness was in the Old Testament, it continues and carries the same strength and Christological emphasis here in the New the mercies that are new every morning in Lamentations 3 and the faithfulness of God that we experience through them, we do so primarily through the new covenant by the person 
and work of Jesus Christ. And that's why he ends with the way he does. Because he says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful, and by his eternally gracious and eternally sovereign plan, he called the church at Corinth into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. We've already seen them called by God. We've already seen them called to be saints. And now they're called together into a fellowship, a togetherness, a communion of other called out ones who together gather around the Son of God and celebrate his gospel. Does this sound familiar? This is the church. And as broken as things may seem at times, it's what God has created for us and what he's building us to be as his son's bride. Having been united around this shared experience of God's past grace, having been built into this present satisfaction in Christ, and pointing now to our future hope, together we stand with our faithful God against the sin that divides us, that keeps us apart. Because, brothers and sisters, his work is the basis for our unity. Would you pray? God, you are faithful. You are faithful to accomplish what you started. You are faithful to give gifts to your church so that we're not lacking in anything we need for the building up of the body. You are faithful to give us your word through which we are instructed in how to live, through which we're instructed of the kind of God you are and where we fall short. Thank you, God, that in your faithfulness you made a way for us to be cleansed, to have our sins washed, to receive Jesus' perfect righteousness and to stand blameless before the Father. Help these truths to cement in our hearts a song of thanksgiving to you. Even as Paul thanked you, God, for the Corinthian church, for what you had done in them and were doing in them, I pray that the song of thanks would be on our lips as well and that it would change the way we view our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name, amen.